You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. To say God is good is to speak the truth. To say we are not good is to speak the truth. God is good, we are not. It's basically what my message is this morning. Now, I don't want to burst your bubble. I just want to give us the right perspective. We're dealing with something in churches today that man has dealt with since the beginning of time. We're dealing with something in our country today that man has dealt with since the beginning of time. Since even before time began, you could say, what was the first sin took place in heaven? It's a sin called pride. Thinking of yourself just a little bit higher than you are. Thinking ourselves just a little better than we are. I'm reminded of when Moses stood before the great I am in that burning bush. And God said, take your shoes off. You're too high. Get lower. What an incredible God we serve. I want to remind us this morning of who we are and who he is. I think when we see who he is and we remember who we are, only then can we truly appreciate that by the grace of God, we are something different than we once were. Who were once before blasphemers and persecutors and revilers and mockers. You are sitting here by the grace of God. I was checking out our church YouTube channel this past week. And you know how it is whenever you're on YouTube, there's always all these videos that pop up as recommended or trending or something like that. And I found this one video that was entitled Proof That There's Still Good People in the World. And for some strange reason, I clicked on it. And I started watching the video. And it was all these little clips. One was of a fireman saving a kitten from a burning house. And then another one was a police officer jumping into a river and saving a child that was drowning. Another one was a person leaving a $1,000 tip for their waitress or their waitress. was a child hugging a pizza delivery. And I got about, you know, 25 minutes in and I stopped watching. Um, but I'll be honest, I started to feel a little fuzzy inside. You know what nice gestures, what kind people. What, what selflessness that these people showed. And I, I started thinking, you know what? Maybe the world isn't as big of a wreck as we think it is. And then I saw another video. And it was entitled, How to Save Our Planet. <laughs> what? And for some strange reason... I clicked on that too. And don't judge me. You do the same thing. You tell your husband or you tell your spouse, honey, I'm going to bed early today. And you go to bed at 10 o'clock and the next thing you know it's 1230 and you're watching videos of interviewing Lee Harvey Oswald's mom. Okay, You know how it works. 
So I clicked on that video and I start watching this video of how to save our planet. And it starts with this funeral dirge music and showing all this plastic coming up on the beach, you know, and talking about littering and global warming and how plastic is going to bring the end of the age and turtles are dying and we need to use metal straws instead of plastic straws and um, how our emissions are up and all these species are being endangered and at some point, you know, winter is just going to stop, which they should have come to Texas last week. And by the way, my Bible says summer and winter and snow and rain, that's not going to cease. And I don't think God changed his mind. So, but then it said this, but we, or, but can we turn our situation around? And it gives this dramatic pause. And then it said this, and I knew what I was going to preach on. Can we turn our situation around? And this is what the video said. Well, due to one key change, as societies develop, something is happening that has never happened before. People are having fewer children. Globally, since the year 2000, the number of people under the age of 16 has hardly changed. The main reason our population is still rising is because people are living longer. If this continues, our population may finally stop growing by the turn of the century. Get this. By investing in education and women's rights, we could bring about this change even sooner. Did you catch that? This changes everything. It would give us the opportunity we need to regain our balance. So this, and by the way, this wasn't some Podoc corporation. This was BBC that put this out. You know Planet Earth? Sir David, At Sir David Attenborough, that guy who only has one job to narrate things? That is, this is the new ideology. We can save the planet by teaching kids to be safe and letting women abort their babies. Because less people means less draw on the environment. Not, not, more, not more truth, not more restraint, not less lust, more education, and let women have their rights and global warming will be done. And I was quickly reminded how wicked we are. We are. It is by the grace of God we don't think that way. That is human nature to think that way. If we do not think that way, it is because God has changed your nature. A YouTube video may say there's still good in the world. My Bible says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. And ladies and gentlemen, we get ourselves in trouble when we start thinking that we're better than we are. And we start thinking, you know what? We're pretty good. Pretty good people. 
There's a word for when we consider ourselves better than we really are. You already said it. It was pride that made the devil the devil. And it's making a hell out of our world. But it can't do anything else. God never intended for us to pat ourselves on the back. If he did, our hinges would be different. The person all wrapped up in himself, in himself is overdressed. The person full of himself is due for a stomachache every time. And what this world needs, we're talking about this mandatory vaccine. This world needs a mandatory vaccine of truth and honesty. Pure, unadulterated truth. And the truth is, in us, that is, in our flesh, nothing good. In our flesh dwelleth no good thing. Doesn't the Bible say that? Again, I'm not trying to burst your bubble. Let's just make sure our bubble isn't bigger than it should be. And let's make sure you, we remember the one who blows up the bubble. And it's not us. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible to be a good person. It certainly is possible. The Bible talks about the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Or a good man obtaineth favor of the Lord. Acts describes Barnabas as a good man. It is possible to be good. I'm not saying it's impossible to be a good person. I'm saying before we start labeling ourselves good, let's make sure we set the right standard here. Right. See what I'm talking about? If I were to take these three trumpets right here, and I, if I were to bring in Brother James, Brother Jeremy, and Ian, and Cole, do you have your trumpet here? Okay. And let's say they all played their tuning note, and they were all off. And let's say I start tuning them one to another. Maybe they'll be in tune with one another. Or maybe you'll be able to say, well, I'm not as out of tune as you are. Well, I'm not as out of tune as you are. Well, you're way out of tune. So I'm closer. No, no, no. You know what matters? Play that note on the piano. Play, it, play a note on the tuning fork. That's what we need to tune ourselves to. And a lot of people are looking around, well, not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as that person. Compared to that person, compared to everything else that's going on in the world, I'm, I'm pretty good. When is the last time we looked into the perfect law of liberty and let it be the mirror that would show us uh, that, 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 and that's why people don't read this book. I told you before, when I was, when I was a teenager, my face turned into a human zit factory. Blind men were coming up and reading my face. My way, to get away, my way to get away from it, I just didn't look at mirrors. I did not look at mirrors. And a lot of people do that. Now, I looked at other people, and I saw some other people that were struggling like I was, and thinking, well, don't look like that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. This will go away. That, that's, you know, that's, you're stuck with that. So <laughs> it was my brother. I could say things like that. So people think my brother and I are twins. He, he is a handsome guy. He's a real. <laughs> we start comparing ourselves to one another, and whenever we look in this book, and it shows us what we really, ooh. So we don't read it. We avoid church. Or we find a church that pats us on the back and tickles our ears just a little bit. If you want that kind of church, there's one right down the road. It's fine. But I'm assuming that you're here because the Lord wants you here. I'm assuming that you're here, and as long as you're here, I mean, we can pray so that you can sneak out if you'd like, but as long as you're here, I'm going to preach the truth as much as the Lord will help me. And the truth is, 
in us, that is, in our flesh, dwelleth no good thing. There is no good in this world without God because only God shows us truly what is good. And I want to bring that out to you this morning. It's when we take our eyes off of God that we start lowering the standard of good. And when we lower the standard of good, we start thinking of ourselves higher than we should. Why are churches busy? Why, why are churches and pastors and people and teachers, why are we bringing God down to man's level? Aren't we supposed to bring man up to God's level? Aren't we supposed to be holy for he is holy? But we have this idea that Jesus is just this guy that we can kind of sit around the campfire with and shoot the breeze. No, he is the very son of God. Deity, perfect, holy, will have nothing to do with sin other than pay for it. But we think we're just going to waltz into his presence because we're pretty good people. It's when we take our eyes off of God, we start comparing ourselves with others. We start thinking, you know, I'm not so bad. Not bad doesn't equal good. Let me explain. There's a young lady here in the front row. Won't say her name, but she's wearing red. And she loves this restaurant in the area called Boat and Net. You need to pray for her. And she kept on saying, Pastor, you've got to try Boat and Net. You've got to try Boat and Net. And I finally tried it after about two years of putting it off. Pastor, how'd you like it? And I said, it's not bad. <gasps> to which I say, Stephanie. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried. Everyone knew who it was. Uh, not bad doesn't mean good, okay? I'm not going to live the rest of my life eating at not bad restaurants, right? Okay? More and more people are content with being not bad people rather than seeing what it means to truly be good. Don't, don't worry, we're just having some nursery things. I'm sure a child is playing with matches or it's okay. We'll be all right. We have ladies that will take care of this. They are professionally trained by someone. Uh -uh. <laughs> when I get to heaven someday, I don't want to hear God say, well done, you weren't bad. Well done, thou not so bad and sort of faithful servant. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And as I was reading through Daniel here recently, I couldn't help but notice that Daniel made. Now, when you read the Bible, you need to understand these are real people. These are true people who had just as much time as you did and who put their sandals on one foot at a time like we do. They're people with like passion and like temptations that we all had. And this is what Daniel says in chapter 10, verse 8. My comeliness was turned in me and I retained no strength. I looked up that word comeliness. It means magnificence. It means grandeur. Similar words would be glory, honor, majesty, or beauty. A root word that brought this Hebrew word comeliness, the root word means to be exalted or proud. 
His comeliness was turned into corruption. I looked up the word corruption. Uselessness. Destruction. Similar words would be impurity, atrocity, depravity. The root word that brings corruption in Hebrew means decay or ruin. Daniel said from magnificence to uselessness. From grandeur to destruction. From glory to impurity, from pride to ruin. Now, I don't consider myself a smart person. I've never been accused of that. You know an opposite when I see one. Light and darkness, black and white, politics and honesty, positive and negative, all those things. But comeliness to corruption is about as big of an opposite as you can get. And it happened in a moment to Daniel. And we're not talking about some heathen person. We're not talking about some wicked king. We're not talking about some so-so kind of run-of-the-mill person in the Bible. This is Daniel we're talking about. We've got to get it. This is Daniel. We sing songs about Daniel today. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose for him. Dare to make it known. How many of you have ever met a young man named Ahab? No? How about Judas? How about Herod? How many of you have met someone named Daniel? Okay. Met many men named Daniel. You know why? Because Daniel was an impressive young man. Who was this man? Let's go through it. Who was this man? What was he like? What was his character? And I started going back because that statement, I couldn't get past that statement. My comeliness was turned in me into corruption. And you had some commentators who were saying his comeliness was talking about his facial expression. His facial expression just changed. Nah, I don't buy that. When I look at it, it means magnificence, grandeur, majesty, glory, honor. He said all of that was gone in a moment. So I started looking back and thinking, who is, who is Daniel? What does the Bible tell us about Daniel? And first I wanted to know, when I looked at Daniel and the world, what do I see? When I compare Daniel to the world, or what did the world see when it saw Daniel? Turn with me to chapter 1 of the same book, Daniel chapter 1. Who was this young man, Daniel, in the world's eyes? Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. We'll go through verse 6. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Or Jehoiakim, of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they, st they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So think about this. Nebuchadnezzar says, I want someone of the king's seed. That's royal birth. I want a prince. That's a male. 
I want children, 15 to 20 years of age, possibly a little bit more than that. Someone in whom is no blemish, no blemish in body, mind, or spirit. No hindrance in that way. Someone who is well-favored, good-looking. Men, most of us have lost right there. Skillful in all wisdom, intelligent, a quick learner. Cunning in knowledge, someone who wasn't just book smart, but street smart. Someone who understands you need some common sense. You need to be a little bit shrewd. Understands a desire to learn more. Not thinking, oh, I know what I know and I don't want to know anymore. No. And an ability to stand and have some Someone who has. All of this was necessary to Nebuchadnezzar so that he could teach those boys the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And in the eyes of the world, Daniel checked every single one of those boxes. Do you see that? If we can put it this way, that was a stacked resume. Daniel was an impressive young man. Well, maybe he just slipped through the cracks. Okay, fair enough. Let's keep reading about him. Out of the hundreds of thousands of Israelite boys that Nebuchadnezzar sends his men and says, look for boys that check off all these boxes. Out of the hundreds of thousands, a few thousand meet that criteria, Daniel being one of them. They come into Babylon. Of those few thousand, they're placed under the care of a man named Ashpenaz. And out of all of those thousands, Ashpenaz loved one. He had one favorite. And chapter 1, verse 9 says that favorite was Daniel. Daniel is the one who stood out out of all those thousands. Well, maybe Ashpenaz was a poor judge of character. Okay, what about King Nebuchadnezzar? Chapter 1, verse 20 says, I find Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar said, I find Daniel and his three friends ten times better. Ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that are in my realm. When Nebuchadnezzar had a problem that he couldn't solve, who did he go to? He went to Daniel. Chapter 2, verse 48, look there, says Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Even after Nebuchadnezzar was gone and a man named Belshazzar is reigning, all the way in chapter 5, verse 11, Look here, Daniel is still here. Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Belshazzar is reigning now. Look in verse 11. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee. I'm in verse 10 right now, I'm sorry. Nor let thy countenance be changed. Verse 11. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Now this is a worldly explanation in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Belshazzar ends up making Daniel the third ruler in his kingdom. Now it was only for a day, but he made him the third ruler of the kingdom. We follow him so far. Now, maybe it was just a Babylonian's culture. 
Maybe it was just some Babylonian nature to look at a man like Daniel and consider that something high, consider that something honorable. There are some things in other cultures that are seen as respectful, where here, it's, no, it's not really respected at all. So, okay, maybe it was a different culture. Let's keep reading. What about when the Medes and the Persians come in? In one night, they take over the, the Babylonian Empire. What happens then? Look in chapter 5, verse 30. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Look in verse six, uh, chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom in 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was, found in, was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Maybe, at, oh, just for sake of argument, maybe Ashpenaz and Nebuchadnezzar and, Bel and Belshazzar and Darius were all just flattering Daniel. Charming him, laying it on thick, sweet-talking, buttering up, smoozing, soft-soaping, fawning over, groveling, overpraising, snowballing. Okay, let's humor that for sake of argument. King Darius promotes Daniel, this foreigner, to be the lead president in this new kingdom that they just took over, the, the most powerful kingdom on the, in the world at the moment. And he appoints Daniel, a foreigner, over all of them. How do you think the national presidents are going to feel about that? How do you think the people that are actually from media and Persia are going to feel about that? Look in verse 4. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Do we get the picture? According to the world, Daniel is a good man, an impressive young man. Not even his enemies can find anything wrong with him. And they're looking up and down every single way under a microscope. Daniel was someone you wanted in charge. Daniel was someone you could trust. Daniel was the best of the best of the best. Don't you think it would be a little easy at this point for Daniel to look at all of those accomplishments and think, not bad. Started as a 15-year-old boy in captivity, and look where I am now. Had three kings appoint me as leaders. Okay, what about Daniel and his brethren then, I thought? Daniel and his fellow believers. Because it's it's, it, it can be easy to compare ourselves to the world and think, oh, not bad at all. But what about when we compare ourselves to our brothers? What about when we see Daniel and his brothers in belief? And from what I see, Daniel was even a leader in these circles. It was Daniel who purposed in his heart not to defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. It was Daniel who said, I am not going to drink the wine which he drank, and his three friends followed him. I can't help but think that when those three friends told Nebuchadnezzar, no, we are not bowing down to that image, I can't help but think they learned how to take a stand by watching Daniel. 
calling back to when those presidents and princes of Media and Persia wanted to find a way to get rid of Daniel, they said this, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So they make this statute. You cannot pray, you cannot ask a petition to any man or any God for the next 30 days. Every petition has to come to King Darius because they knew Daniel prayed three times a day. I don't see anywhere else where any other Hebrew boy was known for praying three times a day. Out of all the Hebrews in the kingdom, Daniel is the one that stood out as a leader in prayer. Daniel was the one of all his Hebrew brothers and sisters who read and studied Jeremiah and found out that they were to be there for 70 years. It was Daniel who read that. According to the world, Daniel is an incredible person. Compared to his brethren, he's still a cut above the rest. Willful to stand for God, faithful to pray to God, joyful to trust in God. And think about this. He came to Babylon when he was how old? Teenager, young. Daniel's greatness in character, his resoluteness in morality, his earnestness in prayer, his steadfastness and love for God continued for decades and decades. By the time we get to by the time we get to chapter 10, we can go ahead and turn there, our, where we read at the beginning. By the time we get to chapter 10, we find Daniel as an old man, possibly in his mid-80s, depending on when he came, how old he was when he came. But now he's possibly in his mid-80s. Gentlemen, how many of you wouldn't mind saying, I am somewhere in my mid-80s? Anyone at all? Brother E.C. Brother E.C. There's Brother Daniel right there. All right, how many of you who stand for truth? If you think the only way I'm going to make it in this world is if I, if I become like the world, you're wrong. It was Daniel's love for the Lord. It was his stand for truth that attracted the world to him. Did he have persecution? Certainly. Certainly. But if, if standing for the Lord brings our persecution, if we get thrown in the lion's den because we pray, what are we going to do? Stop praying? If, if not bowing down to the world's idols gets us thrown in the fiery furnace and they say, we're going to turn it up seven times hotter, so be it. So be it. We're going to stand for truth. And Daniel did that for decades, still praying, still standing in a heathen land, still studying, still loving God, yet it's here. Have you followed all the way up to this point? It's here. It's now, after decades of faithful service, after decades of being admired and respected by both the world and brethren, we see a meeting between Daniel and Jesus. And no, Jesus' name isn't mentioned in Daniel chapter 10, but it is clear as crystal that the man that Daniel sees in chapter 10, verse 5, is none other than the Son of Man, Jesus himself, the second person of the Godhead, clothed in linen, Jesus in all of his glory. Linen was the garment of the priests. Look in verse 5 of chapter 10. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen. Oh, and by the way, we know this is Jesus because when you read about John's description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, it's the exact one. And he said, I am the first and the last. That's Jesus. Whose loins were girded with fine gold of euphaz. His body also was like the barrel. His face is the appearance of lightning. His eyes as lamps of fire. We're just reading over this. 
How awesome is this? We use the word awesome all the time. Oh, I saw Niagara, Niagara Falls and it was awesome. This is awesome. His arms and his feet like in color to polished brass and his, the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision and there remained no strength in me for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption and I retained no strength. Do you see that? Do we understand what is happening here? Daniel, a man that gained high honors from the world, a man that rose to positions that most men only dream of in this life, a man that stood out in a crowd of standouts one glimpse of Jesus. One glimpse of who he was. And he said, all of that in me was gone. All of it gone. A leader, a prayer, an intelligent man, a wise man said, when I saw him, everything good about me, all my comeliness was turned in me to corruption. Anything that could be called magnificent about me was useless. Everything grand about me was destroyed. All my glory shown to be impurity. All my pride brought to ruin. Everything good about me was shown to be no good at all when I saw him. When I was compared to him. My comeliness was in me to corruption and I retained no strength. Go ahead. Go ahead and pat ourselves on the back for all of our earthly accolades. Go ahead and dust off the trophies on our shelf, the bowling league when we were in third grade. Go ahead and be proud of human rewards. Uh, go ahead and be proud of a diploma on the wall. Tell everybody about how you graduated with honor. Show them your 401k. Show off your letters of recommendation. One glimpse of Jesus is all it will take to remind us of how wicked we truly are. One glimpse of him, and in a moment, everything about us that we are so proud of, everything that makes us think that in a side of fries, everything that makes us think, you know, I'm not so bad. Like that Pharisee, Lord, I tithe of all that I possess. I fast three times a week. I thank thee that I'm not like the kin. Everything that we are standing on there's a reason every single time someone came face to face with Jesus in the Bible, in all his glory, they weren't standing. Go ahead and pat ourselves on the back for all the things that we stand on in this world. When we see who he is, we have nothing left to stand on. And again, that's why people won't read this book. Because when we compare ourselves to the world, we may start thinking, you know what, I'm not so bad. I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't run with those that do. I'm educated, I've got status, people respect me at work. When we compare ourselves to our peers, we may start thinking pretty highly of ourselves. There are some people who are so pleased with themselves, they have learned how to strut sitting down. There are some people, their noses are so high, rains, they're in danger of drowning. I read a quote, a lot of people who are accused of being cheerful all the time are just proud of their teeth. 
We are so prideful. But when we read this book and we get just a glimpse of who he is, all of our comeliness turns into corruption. We're quickly reminded when we're compared to God, dust and ashes. Now I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going somewhere. Stay with me. I'm going to circle around the airport a couple times and then we'll land. I've told us the hard truth. The good part's coming. So many times we walk around this life thinking we're a somebody. Read about Joshua. Was Joshua not a great leader? How many of you gentlemen who have a son would say, you know what, I would be disappointed if my son grew up to be like Joshua? Nobody. A great leader, an incredible military mind. You realize that Joshua's tactics are still used today? He's an incredible military mind. People looked to him. They respected him. They feared him. But by Jericho, he sees a man with his sword drawn in his hand. And he says, I'm captain of the host of the Lord. And he fell down on his face. Read about Peter, James, and John. Three of Jesus' 12 apostles in the inner circle, we say. Men with influence, but on that Mount of Transfiguration, they saw Jesus in all his glory, and they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Read about Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a man that many people look to, an elite of the religious elite, a student of Gamaliel, a scholar of the law, a Roman citizen, freeborn in the Roman Empire, a leader of the Jews, but on the road to Damascus. He sees Jesus in all his glory. And Saul isn't riding on his high horse anymore. He's on his face to the earth. Read about John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 1, the disciple that Jesus loved, who wrote five books of the Bible, a leader in the early church, but when he saw Jesus, the first and the last, he said, I fell on my face as dead. And here we are, thinking we're somebody. When's the last time we've gotten a glimpse of who he is? When's the last time we remembered? There's a story of a missionary. I believe it was in Africa. Don't, don't quote me. It was, some, it was some foreign country. And he had a prayer request. And someone told him about a lady far deep in a village who was a prayer warrior. And he said, if you're going to go see her, you better be careful. She knows how to get in touch with God. And he said, I want to meet this lady. He went out. He explained the situation. It was a mud hut. She sat on the floor. And the missionary said she just sat for what he felt was hours. I don't know how, much, how long it was. He said it felt like an eternity just in silence. And she, she went down, she picked up a handful of dirt and let it fall through her hands. And she said, Lord, this is what I am. And she started taking that dirt and throwing it up in the air. This is all I am. I'm but dirt, dust and ashes. And I'm coming to you, the one who made the worlds, the one who spoke the stars into being. I'm coming to you. The missionary said it wasn't by minutes. I couldn't even open my eyes. God came in that place. 
People don't seem to think that way anymore. No wonder the world is in the mess that it's in. No wonder our country is going to hell. We are so prideful. It's quiet in here because we're a prideful people. Nobody likes to humble themselves. But make no mistake, we cannot see Jesus and keep our pride. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, you will either be humbled or you can humble yourself. You will either be humble or you will be humiliated when we stand before Christ. That perfect son of God. One glimpse is all it takes for us to be reminded that we are nothing. But it's when we admit that we are nothing. It's when we realize he, how great he is and how little we are. Even our righteousnesses, the best part of us, in God's eyes, filthy rags. It's when we humble ourselves. God says, I'll work with that. Look in Daniel chapter 10. I was left alone. I saw this great vision. My comeliness was turned in me into corruption and I retained no strength. What's the next word? Yet. Yet. Heard I the voice of his words. It was when Daniel got low that God says, now I'll answer your prayer. Think about Joshua. Joshua could have gone up to those walls of Jericho and said, yeah, I know how to do this. I've got the military might. I've got the men behind me. I'm respected. I'm feared by those people in there. I know that. All I have to do is get around this, get around that. But he comes face to face with captain of the, of the Lord, or captain of the host of the Lord, and he says, you're going to do this my way. And Joshua falls down and says, what would you have your servant do? And that is where the Lord led him. Think about Peter and James and John. They're standing there, those great disciples. Out of all the people that he could have chose, he chose those three people to come up to, with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter tried, didn't he? Peter tried to say, Lord, it's good that we're here, isn't it? Oh, it's really good that we're here. Let's build a tabernacle for you and for Moses and for Elijah. And God said, this is my beloved son. Stop talking. Hear him. And they fell down on their feet and were sore afraid. Peter tried. How many times? Lord, I, I know I'm a pretty good person. You're talking to God Almighty. Let's get low. It was when they lowered themselves that Jesus taught them. It was when Joshua lowered himself that Jesus led him. It was when Daniel lowered himself that Jesus answered his prayer. It was when Saul lowered himself that he saved his soul. Thirteen people yesterday humbled themselves. And that's when the Lord saved their soul. It was when John humbled himself and became as dead that Jesus revealed himself. I am the first and the last. Many people seem to think in order for God to work with us, we have to be somebody. And many people go further and think because we're somebody, God is just obligated to use us. Look at how the world looks at me. Look at even my, my, my brothers. They ask me questions and they respect me. But we get ourselves in trouble when we start thinking a little bit higher than we should. And it's when we admit we're nobody that God works with us. It's only when we become a nobody that we can become a somebody. It's only when we admit we are no good 
that God can show us truly what it means to be good. Because the steps of a good man are ordered what? By our accomplishments? By who we are? By what the world thinks of us? No. A good man, his steps will be ordered by the Lord. And that happens when we say, Lord, I'm, I'm nobody. I am nothing. You've got to help me. I need your grace to get through this trial. I need your grace to get through this. I, I, what, am, what am I? What am I supposed to do? When God appeared to Moses, what was my first question? Lord, who am I? And God's answer was, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. And who I am is with you. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. We need to remember, without him, we would be nothing. Without him, we'd surely fail. Without him, we would be dying. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But it's when you admit that, Christian, God says, I've got grace for that. And even though you are but dust and ashes, I'll use you. For God to speak to us, to use us, to lead us. What an incredible privilege. How dare we let pride come in our heart and think we had anything to do with it. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.